Shall we begin? Why not? Welcome to Frankie Sense and More. It's like she's got a whole lot of goodness for you with a little bit of sass. Frankie, did you just say... She sure did. Not to mention... Along with... Whoops. Join us now as Frankie Picasso and her new co-host mix it up with authors, musicians, and interviews with world-changing people. Let's begin, Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. Hello there, and welcome to Frankie Sent Some More. Do we ever have a great show for you today? I'm going to introduce all of my guests first, and then we're going to go back, and I'm going to, uh, we'll start talking and having a conversation, and I hope that everybody will converse and, and join in as we do this. Uh, today we have Rochelle Decker. She's with us, and I'm so pleased that she's back again. Uh, she has, this is her third visit to Frankie Sent Some More because she's written three books, uh, part of a series, her series, and Rochelle is the eldest daughter of the multi-award winning New York Times international best-selling author of over 40 novels, Ted Decker. So she really does come by her talent, honestly. She was inspired early on to discover truth through the avenue of storytelling, and I, for one, am very glad that she did. She graduated with a degree in communications and spent several years in marketing and corporate recruiting before making her transition to writing full-time, and she lives in one of my favorite cities, Nashville, with her husband, Daniel, and their diva cat, Blair. And I'm sure Blair's still a diva cat. <laughs> she is. She, she is. Okay. Ben Shaka, he uh, is the author of Meals from Mars. He is the executive director of the Restoration Academy in Fairfield, Alabama. Restoration has been seeking to provide equality and Christ-centered education to urban youth in Birmingham for the last 28 years, 17 of which I think, Ben, you have been there. Uh, you are the author, as I said, Meals from Mars. He received his BA in history from Wheaton College, his master's in educational leadership from Covenant College, and uh, he is married to his wife, Sarah. They have four children, and they live in the neighborhood where he serves. So that's pretty cool. Kathy Kravke is also my co-host today. She is a Tiger Texan native. She's a, a writer and she is a fellow colleague on Dynamic Women. We um, radio, I should say. And she's just this beautiful, bright, heart-centered voice and um, loves these authors to death and, and is, you know, fellow with them in Christ. And so I think I'm very excited to have her her here with us today, too. I'm going to start off with a little story. If you haven't heard this story, um, it just warmed my heart. And, and I think it's really important for part of our conversation today. Uh, last week, you might have read that Lydia Rosebush told her little boy that his hair was getting wild and he needed to have a haircut. And, his, and Jax was his name, and Jax made a surprising announcement. He said that he wanted his head shaved short so he could look like his best friend, Reddy. And this little boy convinced he was so convinced that he and Reddy would look alike if he got his hair cut like him that he couldn't wait to get it done and he couldn't wait to go to school so he could trick his teacher into thinking that they're twins and maybe she wouldn't notice that, you know, she wouldn't know who was Reddy and who was Jax. Now, Jax is a little black boy and Reddy is a little white boy, but in his eyes, the only difference was their hairstyle. And I think that that just is so beautiful and just really shows how much our, you know, the conversations that we have at home and, and the media and what everybody else does to make us different because these little boys had no idea that they were different other than a haircut. So I think that's pretty cool. 
<laughs> As I said, uh, Rochelle, Rochelle is the author of the Sears series. I said she, it was a three-book trilogy, which she culminated with the last book, The Returning. Uh, I feel like a proud sister. I don't know why. <laughs> I've been with you since the beginning, you know, starting, starting yeah. with the choosing. Uh, the series started with the choosing, then the calling, and now the returning. And I really feel, Rochelle, that you have grown stronger. In this third book, I think the writing felt more committed. It, I, you know what? I thought I was reading your dad's books, and I read every single book that he read. And that is a huge compliment. And not that you copy him or that, you know, anything like that. It was just the writing was Decker, you know, like yeah. fantastic. No, I, I take that as a compliment for sure. Good. Good, because it was certainly meant to be one. And in this last book, you just you explore the idea of forgiveness. And so before we talk about uh, the returning, can you just set the stage for us from book one to two? Yeah, I don't want to give too much away. Um, no. It's a progression from the beginning yeah. to the end. But uh, the Seer series, the trilogy, um, takes place in a post-apocalyptic setting. So dystopian, um, where we discover the world, find it in a place where it's trying to kind of rebuild itself after a disaster that's um, affected all of the planet. And um, in order to find, reestablish stability and humanity and kind of grow and prosper, um, they revert back to a very um, old system, class system way of living where everybody has their role and their place and you're told who you are and what box you fit in and what your worth is. And we follow the journey of several individuals, but one primarily Carrington as she um, has kind of trained her whole life to be picked as a bride, to be a wife and a mother. That is her role. That is her duty. Um, and she is actually not picked right in the beginning of the novel. She's not chosen for this kind of role that she's been training for her entire life. And because of that is cast outside of the society, away from her family, never to marry or to be loved, to feel a different role, an outcast uh, role, a worker role. And her real journey and experience of finding her identity outside of the rules and the confines of what society says she's worth. And what if everything she's believed about herself is a lie? And what if she's already chosen, already picked? And what if there's a greater identity beyond all of the confines that she's been taught? And how could she change the, her own reality and the reality of everyone she comes in contact with if she learns that? And that kind of sets this epic whirlwind journey um, as she discovers that about herself and the people around her discover that and... Um, this rebellion is kind of born and it goes into book two and and into book three. So So it's kind of a love story too, because, you know, it's a love story between her and and God. And it's also a love story between her and her husband, Remco, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, they're, uh, they had children and their children through the books, you know, grow Mm -hmm. and, and are, you know, integral part of, of that story. Yeah. So how, uh, we can't give a lot away. So how how does how does this does Aaron like we have this this we have Aaron who who is in all three books, uh, mysterious figure. He comes and he visits, and you know I guess it's up to the reader to choose who he is. Mm-hmm. But he 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 kind of is is that that guiding light who who reminds them who they are. Yes. Yeah. I think that he, for some kind of represented quite literally the Holy Spirit for others. I think he was kind of angelic. Um, I really wanted to leave it open because I think the most amazing power 
that you get with fiction is the ability to make it your own story and you put yourself in that place. And so as a writer, I always aim to give the reader enough to that, so that they can make it their own, but leave enough open that they can kind of translate it how they want. Um, and, and kind of make that take, make it a very spiritual journey for them. The actual reading itself, discovering um, the truth itself. So I left him open, but for me, I always ca- kind of saw him as like a wise sage, you know, yeah. like a Gandalf or a, I mean, somebody who just in, in a, pol- in, in, in an endearing, in a authoritative way, kind of always seemed to have the answers, but never gave them right to you. Just walked alongside of you as you learned them which is really what I wanted him to represent. So the theme in all three books is this remembering and forgetting and remembering because we're supposed to do that, as you say. Mm-hmm. And, and, but in this last book, it's about forgiveness. And I know Kathy is like, she cannot wait to ask a question. I can feel her through the, through the lines here. Okay, You're Kathy. So right about that, Frankie. I don't even know where to begin. I, I am so amazed, first of all, because I write myself all the time. And I'm so amazed at people who can write fiction and create a fantasy world. And I loved what Rochelle just said about allowing the reader to make it their own. Mm -hmm. I I totally believe my version is the right version. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not it, girl. That's fine. (laughs) Whatever you did is working. Like, I'm just taking notes as you speak because I'm thinking (laughs) everything I learned today from you and Ben is going to improve my writing. Y'all are amazing writers. Thank you they so are. They are. Definitely. And but this idea about, you know, f- um, remembering and forgetting now it you know, the rem- you, you talk. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think okay. um, kind of like big overview of life. My what I'm learning. I'm very young still. I have a, an incredible amount of life to go. Hopefully, God willing. Um, yes. you know, I'm just just turned 30 this year, so I'm very young. But I. I think for me, I've discovered that life is really about trying to figure out who you are um, and where your identity lies. And as a believer, as a Christ follower, I always find that answer when I step into alignment with my creator. And I listen to what he says about me, what the spirit says about me, and I let that guide me and I let that be my foundation um, for who I am, then the rest of the world, the problems of, um, you know, pride and selfishness and hatred and division, those kind of seem to fade because I know who I am in Christ. The okay, problem- I got to stop you. I got to stop you there for a moment because I know that there's listeners going, how do, how do you know what he's saying to you? How do you know that? Yeah, I think that that is a couple of different ways. Practically, I think spending time um you know, studying the Bible, uh, other works that might, uh, of people who have come before for us. You know, mm-hmm. for me, uh, I spent a lot of time discussing these kind of things with my father, with my husband, being in community with other people who believe the same or maybe differently too, mm-hmm. because that can really influence, um, challenge you and really help you become stronger in what you believe. And then also spending a lot of time kind of, I, I, I like to say being the watcher, um, you know, stepping out of the world of form, the, the physical world and, and spending some time really, whether it's devotion or in meditation, just 
listening to my internal voice, to the spirit part of myself, which is greater than the physical part of myself, we just forget. Right. You know, I, my dad has this amazing saying that I always, that I steal and use, and I'm sure he won't mind. Well, it doesn't matter because I do it anyways. But he always says we are spiritual beings having physical experiences, not physical beings having spiritual experiences. I agree totally with that. And we're going to go to commercial break on that, Rochelle. Thank yeah. you so much. And when we come back, well, we're going to explore a little bit more about that. We're going to meet Ben, and then we're going to all of us have a conversation because I have some questions. Maybe you guys have the answers. I don't know. But uh, don't go anywhere because we will be right back. We're just getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. is almost here and the scarecrows or tatty doolies as the scottish call them are out but halloween is all about trick-or-treating and that means candy the average american eats 24 pounds of candy a year and most of that consumption occurs around halloween what do you call a person who loves to eat a grand gozier popular costumes for this year are happy face and wink face emojis of course, since it's a presidential election year, there are various costume choices for those who wish to dress up as Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton or Republican candidate Donald Trump. If you ask me, the only thing scarier than Halloween this year is the presidential election. What's another word for the fear of Halloween? Sam Hainophobia. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. Did you know that one in five car crashes happen during the process of looking for a parking space? Do you typically take the first base you see or circle around looking for a better spot? Richard Cassidy, a professor of engineering at the University of Arkansas, proposes that it takes longer for people who circle looking for the best spot to get to their destination than those who pick the first spot they see. In other words, you keep moving towards the finish line while the other guy ends up chasing his own taillights. But what do you do about the skillamalink? That's the shady person who slips into your spot when they knew darn well you were waiting for it. I really don't like parking garages. However, not finding a spot to park in a parking garage is wrong on so many levels. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. And we're back, we're back, we're back, and I'm so happy that we are. I'm your host, Frankie Picasso. I'm here with Rachel Decker, Rochelle Decker, I'm sorry, and uh, Ben Shaka and Kathy Crafty. Um, let's, let's meet Ben. Ben, I told you that he was the executive director of Restoration Academy, a Christian school in the inner city of Birmingham, Alabama. And Ben wrote a book called Meals from Mars. And in that book, it's, it takes us on a fateful encounter late at night at a gas station where a white man who lived in the suburbs meets up with a young black man from the neighborhood um, due to circumstances under their control or out of his control. Uh, they, they spend the evening together uh, locked away because of the big snowstorm or whatever. And uh, they learn some truths from one another. Now, Ben, you, you wrote that Meals from Mars is a compelling story of racial tension and the challenge and, and um, 
your hope that the gospel of reconciliation is is there for all of us and for them. And in so this story is a way to start a healthy conversation about race and racial divide. Is that correct? Yeah. No, that's it exactly. Yeah, and I, I like you touching on the just the word conversation. Um, being in the school that I've been in for 17 years, uh, you know, Birmingham is a pretty black and white city. There's not a lot of racial diversity beyond that. And as anybody is familiar with just the history of our country, Birmingham has a, has a pretty dark history, unfortunately, in that area of, re- of reconciliation. And mm-hmm. so, um, working at the school where I work and working predominantly with African American youth, but also intersecting with a lot of uh, uh, white folks as well. I've just been really burdened for the last couple of years, um, in particular with what we've just seen captured on social media with, unfortunately, the, the shooting of unarmed African-American men by the hands of police. Mm-hmm. And then we had police that have been shot and killed uh, in Dallas. We've seen riots and so much uh, unfortunate pandemonium and craziness and brokenness. And um, I guess to, just to the point of conversation, I think we've all taken to social media and there's just so many polarized opinions and viewpoints Mm -hmm. on all of these issues, um, but not really sure how much meaningful dialogue is actually taking place, particularly from maybe the extremes, Um, just a lot of monologue. And and eventually I just think it turns into a lot of noise and unfortunately creates more polarization than it does unity. And so I have have to agree with you there. Do you think that that there's um, more divide, just more vocal? today hmm. or is it is it increasing let's say from the last 10 years yeah i think yeah i think well i think the divide is probably a lot more stark than we want to acknowledge i think there's certainly an aspect within culture and maybe even within the church that feels like we're kind of beyond the civil rights movement and so kind of the grosser era of american history is kind of in the rear view and to some extent i would agree with that but i do think there's still a real stark rift and i think that stuff gets accentuated when we run into uh, issues or politics or events in our country that are racialized in nature. And so um, I think the social media world has really connected us in ways that we couldn't necessarily 10 years Mm ago. Um, But I don't know if it's necessarily uh, helped us advance in meaningful dialogue or conversation or, or for that matter, in mutual understanding. So um, it's tough to really I'm going to ask you a tough question. I'm going to ask a tough question. And the three of you are Christians and I am not. So forgive me. Don't shoot me. Um, But I think think I need to ask it. You know, when you are a follower of Christ, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. there there is automatic love coming from your heart towards humans. There's, you know, other human beings. There's there's supposed to be forgiveness and understanding coming from your heart. Mm -hmm. And just just like, you know, Jackson Redding, you know, looked at each other and just saw a haircut. Why is it that Christians towards other Christians who do not look like them have a difficult time with with race? Like, what what is it? I don't get it. Sure. And anybody well, can answer that. You can you can start that conversation. Yeah, I guess I could jump in first. I mean, I guess from the Christian paradigm, um, you know, we are all sinners, uh, so we do deal with that uh, the S word that not everybody's comfortable with, but. Uh, <laughs> But race, uh, racism, I believe, is a, is a sin uh, by simply sizing up people based on their skin color, by their ethnicity, and then making value judgments on their intelligence or their abilities or their worth in society. And, um, you know, because of that, I believe that we continue to re-tribalize. We're constantly uh, doing that either politically, we even within the church sometimes do it denominationally, but we also do it ethnically because we're continuing to, to be divisive and divided. And so that's something that I think think um, 
I do think that breaks the heart of God. God is a God of unity, not of division. Uh, but unfortunately, we as his followers don't always get that right. And so we continue to, uh, whether it's pride or seeking power or it's just simple ignorance sometimes, uh, we, we tend to continue to kind of polarize ourselves in our own tribes, whether it's people that look like us, think like us, uh, worship like us. And uh, unfortunately, we put up more barriers than we do bridges. And um, mm-hmm. the gospel at its core is really a bridge. Uh, it's a bridge from man to God, but also from mankind to one another. Um, and um, I think, unfortunately, there's there's uh, a legacy within the church. I'm not I'm broad brushing here, but of sometimes building more walls than there is bridges. Hey, lady Rochelle, Kathy, who wants to take it? Let me take the second part okay. because I I think I think that's really so accurate, Ben, to our to our heartbreaking loss. But one thing I do see is the younger generation, and I'm I, my kids are are the age you are. But I, I really see that generation. One of my favorite things is when they kind of laugh at me for my inadvertent ignorance, you know. <laughs> I grew up in a segregated culture, and and it began to fall away and change as I reached uh, high school. But so so fortunately for me, I just had the beauty of of seeing that begin to change slightly. But it, it has been a, it has been so much slower than I expected, and yet the beautiful thing is my kids kind of chuckle about some of my insecurities and so forth. And when they do, I I like my friends that are black or white. When they're in my house and they're teasing me about the things I don't know, I actually find that so re- refreshing and. It makes me really happy, actually. Yeah, I was just... I'm just curious to see what Rochelle would say about the younger generation having a, a fresh and more, more I don't know, conciliatory and confident kind of perspective. Yeah, I would say that is absolutely 100% true. I... Uh, was born in California, lived in Colorado, moved to Austin, ended up in Nashville. And not until I got to Nashville did I even realize, you know, that race was still an issue um, in my early 20s? I, because obviously in Nashville's pretty, uh, pretty accepting compared to a lot of places that surround us in Tennessee. Um, you know, obviously we have like Memphis, Chattanooga. We, I mean, you know, very close to some of the South where it continues to be an issue. My younger sister, who is 19, she is a sophomore at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama, and she, she, Colorado and and Austin, and when she moved there, she was kind of shell-shocked almost at the beginning Mm -hmm. by some of the division that she was experiencing. We had some pretty good discussions about that because, yeah, I mean, in my lifetime, in my circles, in the places I grew up, that just didn't seem to be an issue. But um, when you I, Rochelle, can I stop you there? It, it yeah. wasn't an issue because where you grew up was all white or it wasn't an issue because it it just wasn't an issue. It just wasn't an issue. I mean, my husband has 16, uh, 16 of his relatives. Uh, we have, there's lots of interracial marriage on, sure. on my husband's side and we all grew up together. And so, you know, there were, my youth pastor was African-American, his wife and children were always around. There were a ton, um, you know, of, of black people in our community from Papua New Guinea, from the South. I mean, yeah, we, because your dad, your dad, your grandparents were missionaries, right? They were, yeah, on both so, sides. Yeah, so obviously, you know, you you had a lot of that influence within your family sphere. Yeah. For for me, you know, 
when I, w- I moved from Canada, which is, you know, so diverse, to, to Kentucky in my early teens on uh, the first year of desegregation. So I went to the, a high school, a white affluent high school, on the very first day of desegregation in 1974. Wow. And it was crazy. They bust in these young black kids from wherever they lived um, into that school. And I had never experienced um, racism or anything like uh, ever in my life. And it was such a shock for me. And when I went to university in St. Louis, again, my roommate was, was black and we were moving out and, um, every, it was like every other block was black. It was white. It was black. It was white. And we went to get a house and, and the landlord said, Oh, it's $400. And then he looked at her and he goes, is she going to live with you? And I go, yes. He goes, Oh, it's (gasps) $1,400. So, I mean, it was just such a blatant, you know, right in front of my eyes. I, I couldn't, believe it yeah but but there it there it is there it exists and and for me you know growing up where I did in Canada like we just don't have that yeah Yeah. it's it's pretty intense some places it is go back back to let's go back to Ben for a moment because I mean here he is um a white executive director of a black of an African-American school um and I'm going to ask you this and I'm going to say with with all the love in my heart um what do you know about the African-American experience? Like, do you know what it yeah, feels no, like not to be accepted? Sure. No, that's a great question. And that's, that's probably, I don't, I don't know if anybody can ever completely kind of incarnate the ethnic experience of somebody else in a way that they can say, I know exactly what you're going through, exactly what you're talking about. So can, definitely cannot, cannot put myself exactly in their shoes. I think, again, there's, there's a strong uh, connection that comes through almost 20 years of working here. And then sure. my wife and I and our four kids have been in the neighborhood for 15 years. So we're, we're one of we're pretty much the only white family in the in the in the area as far as you can uh see for several blocks so that's been good we're now kind of the minority culture within our neighborhood and mm-hmm. so that has certainly been valuable but um yeah i think the how does that feel can... how does that feel to your children yeah, well, my, my boys go to the school with me here. My my two daughters, they're the younger two, are actually currently homeschooled. They'll probably end up here in the next couple of years. I think it's been incredibly refreshing. I also grew up in Colorado. I'm from Colorado Springs originally. Oh, are you? Oh, I love Colorado uh, Springs. Yeah, gorgeous town. So it was, it, was, it was culture shock moving from there to Birmingham for sure. So um, were you in the military, your your parents' military? No, actually, uh, my dad taught at a Christian school there, kind of. Um, oh, okay. So we had Pikes Peak, was like right out our front window. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, had a beautiful view of the Rockies, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so that just moving here was, was different. I think the South certainly has a different flavor and feel to it. But I do think just as you get to build relationships and then kind of deeply entrench yourself into a community that's unlike maybe what you grew up in, you do begin to vicariously begin to pick up on some of these experiences and what the, the challenges that many of our brothers and sisters in minority culture face become so much more pertinent and powerful in your own life because you're, you're entrenched in it and surrounded by it. And so uh, a lot of the struggles and, and things that our neighbors face become, become ours as well because uh, this is our neighborhood. These are our basically our family and friends now that, that really we share life with so um if that makes sense but yeah i don't think you can per- you know perfectly say i know what it's like to be <laughs> a, a right. member of minority culture because i am white so we, we are going to go to a commercial break kathy wanted to give a quote from your book we will do that when we come back remind me kathy and then ben i want you to just talk about um from the perspective in your book about the two characters and and what they found oh. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. It's Scotch tape originate in Scotland? 
Nope. The popular gift wrapping tape was actually developed right here in the United States. In 1926, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, 3M, was being a bit rapacious, trying to save a little scratch or money, and started using a cheaper adhesive on their sticky tape. A Detroit automaker ordered some of this newer, cheaper tape to use for spray painting auto bodies. But the automaker complained because the tape was scotch, a politically incorrect word that meant cheap or stingy. While the tape didn't have the adhesion to satisfy the automaker, it was hardly a Jifu jet. That's an unnecessary thing. It had many other uses, as we all know. So the tape was kept in production, and the name Scotch just stuck. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Lifting weights increases your metabolism. The Journal of Sports Science and Medicine reports that people who pair aerobic exercise with resistance training eat 517 fewer calories a day than those who do only cardio work. The combination workouts may increase the hormones that make you feel satisfied and boost the body's ability to break down food and stabilize blood sugar so that you feel fuller longer. If you feel full, you won't eat as much to feel satisfied. The Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association's latest survey found that over 80% of women skip weight training. That's shocking. I encourage you to go to the next level of weight-reducing, calorie-burning exercise. Combine cardio exercise with strength training and see your body weight change. I'm Annette Hammond. Contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. And we're back. And I promised that when we came back, Kathy would give her quote because she loves her quotes. <laughs> I, do. I, I love to find wonderful things that, that capture a truth. And one thing I loved about reading the books from both these authors, Frankie, they are both you guys, Rochelle and Ben, y'all do such a good job of taking truth. It reminds me of Mary Poppins, just a spoonful of sugar makes the yes. medicine go down. I felt like somebody had baked me a cake, and when I got it, my slice eaten, I found out I'd eaten all my vegetables for the day and never knew it. I mean, it was both, both of y'all are so good at presenting truth in a way that just made me want to keep turning the page. It was wonderful. So I, I pulled this quote from uh, Ben's book because this is exactly how I felt the first time I visited the church that is now my home church, which is an African-American church. So I, I know that you captured so much of the dialogue that needs to happen, Ben, in your book, because I'm living it right now in East Texas, and I just want to commend you for that. But So here's what you wrote, one, one of many wonderful things. Jim hated the strong urge he had to shake free from her grip, drop the food on the floor, and run down the stairs. He hated even more the color he felt. He could feel flushing around his neck and his ears. It emerged whenever he was nervous or embarrassed. The first probably two or three times I worshipped in this church that is now my home church, I was looking around the room going, I think I'm the only person here who's white. And I suddenly had a totally new perspective for my beautiful African-American friends who've been going places with me, you know, all those years. And they've always been the one that was different in the room. And 
that I, I felt like my cheeks were so red. So when I read this, I just laughed. I, I thought, oh, my gosh, he nailed it. He got it. That's what it's like. I thought it was interesting in, in your book. And I hope that everybody will go out and get both of these authors' books. So they're fantastic. Meals from Mars and the the returning um, from Rochelle Decker. The, in your book, the um, Jim came from a white church. And they were delivering food and, and to to um, a woman who had been cleaning their church for 35 years. He didn't know her name. He didn't know what she looked like. But, you know, she's an institution in this church. And he actually didn't even – his wife didn't want him to do it. And he thought, no, I said I would do it because somebody couldn't do it. And and so here he goes and delivers this food to, to this woman who lives, you know – uh, pretty much in the projects. And and when she asked for a raise from the church, they said they couldn't afford it. And yet the church, you know, looks very nice and is quite affluent. What did you what did you feel um like when you hear that? Like do you do you you notice the people around you? I mean, she she cleaned that church for thirty five years. How could somebody not even know her? Yeah, well I think we all can go through life like that that we um you know, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. We just kind of sometimes get into a flow and uh, into a kind of a mojo in life and, and literally miss the people right in front of us that we intersect with and share life with. And so, um, you know, she is essentially just kind of a, a shadow in the church um, and is somebody that does a ton of <laughs> amazing work there. But unfortunately, because of her, her job as a maintenance worker, she's just not really appreciated and not really validated for being the image bearer of God that she is. And so, until until the place is dirty and yeah, then people exactly, notice, right? yeah. then that's they right, notice. Yeah. yeah, and that's what her yeah. grandson Malik kind of points out that you not kind of notice her when she's gone, um, but you don't notice her when she's there. And uh, yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of the and, and not and certainly don't want to paint all churches that way, but I think some churches can enter into a community of need wherever it is, even in the third world, and it's just kind of seen as a quick transactional kind of a you know kind of a throw a frozen turkey over the wall kind of thing, yeah. um, and then move on. And I don't so, want to know them. I just I'll just yep. give it to them and I'll feel better about yes. myself. Yep. Ministry without relationship, you know, yeah. it ends up actually yeah. what you're doing in that exchange. I think is you're purchasing for yourself a sense of. Uh, Add a boy for yourself. You kind of purchase for yourself some relief that I've done a good deed or have been on a good errand. But there's at the, the the recipient says if you really loved me, you'd want to have a relationship. And uh, I think right. we miss out on that too often. Absolutely. Go ahead, Kathy. I know you wanted to ask Rochelle a question, and then I have a question for all of you. I really love the way Rochelle created a whole class, a whole sub part of her series that involved as we that what we all do this and Mm -hmm. and you mentioned earlier that three of us are christians but i think all humans do this frankie i just love it that you're facilitating this beautiful conversation we all need to be having and and that is we choose dullness we choose not to know and and when i heard these two authors were going to be together i was like oh my gosh there's the intersection sometimes we would rather not know than have the, the the difficult conversations we need to have. So I was hoping Rochelle would jump in here about how she decided to create this whole sort of John, or I don't even know what to call that. It was just like a whole part of the population was choosing to not know. No, they didn't choose to not know though. They, they, they weren't given the choice. And I think that was the sad part. Yeah. Yeah. I Go think, ahead, Rochelle. Um, I think that, well, similar to all of this, I mean, first of all, ignorance is bliss. 
They say that for a reason. Um, It's much easier to um, sit in your communities, in your homes where it's comfortable and forget that there are people all over the world that are suffering because to acknowledge their suffering and do nothing is worse than to, I mean, if you acknowledge your suffering suffering and then do nothing, then you feel guilty. So now I feel like a bad person. So now I'm also suffering. Better to just not acknowledge the suffering at all. I think there's definitely, especially I would say, unfortunately, within my generation, I think that's kind of starting to change. This election's been so heated and I think an incredible um, opportunity for conversation amongst all of us. But you see this kind of segregation, not only with race, but I mean, everywhere, the class systems. I mean, yesterday we celebrated International Women's Day. I mean, I think women have been louder in the last couple of years and they've been in a long time and for good reason. Um, And so when I went in to the to write the choosing and kind of develop the society I was just really mirroring it off of what I'm experiencing every day outside all of these people who you know for whatever reason we get so sucked up in our egos we get so sucked up in our own versions of what the world is and what it should be and how it serves us and how can I promote myself and how can I find happiness and how can I find peace and you know quite literally screw everybody else um and I think that only does us harm it only causes us suffering but I mean that's definitely in this materialistic you know, ego-driven culture where we find ourselves. And so it wasn't really hard to write a culture that was that way. Um, That was kind of just oblivious and blind and, and following whatever cultural trend was popular at that time. And, you know, and, and not diving deep and looking for answers and, and, and recognizing the darkness and striving, you know, to break through it and to bring in the light. We're just, they were just, content to be, you know, sheep. Yeah. Sheeple. Yeah. I got, I got, you know, I was thinking about your, your, your dystopian world and I was thinking about Ben's book and I wanted to know your thoughts on this. Cause it was, it's a little bit out there. If heaven, if there's, if we take this idea of heaven, you know, that we're going, that we're all being good and we're all going, you know, hopefully go to the other side um, and, and live this perfect existence. Then when we come to earth, I'm thinking Earth should be really messy. We should feel all of these good and bad feelings that and emotions uh, that we have as human beings. Otherwise, what is the point of coming here? We should have just stayed where we were. Like, so I was wondering, do you think that God in his wisdom, do you think that God sends us here or we decide to come here and, and wonders, are we able to do this on, are we able to create what is in heaven on our own? Are we able to come to that, to that, culmination and conclusion um or does it really take his involvement and and so it's always a failure here or is it a success here that we come and we experience these things and that's all it was meant to be because what else is the purpose anybody can jump in frankie coming in with the hard questions (laughs) (laughs) that's a really good that's a really good question um i mean i guess i can just jump in first on that but i mean i think um 
Well, again, I think from the from the Christian perspective or the biblical perspective, I mean, the, one of the things I think is, you know, when you think about the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, as he urged us to pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's always kind of the daily petition that the Christian is supposed to supposed to be lifting up to God, that, that his heavenly agenda, then just what you described, that heavenly peace and perfection and joy that he has in store would actually be unfolded into a broken world, into the fabric of all that's broken around us. And so um, I think that is certainly our petition, our prayer, and it should be the, the work of, of God's people is to to be providing peace and um, and the, the Hebrew word is shalom, really, but just providing mm-hmm. that in every relationship that we run into. Um, and so I do believe that because we are broken people and we do live in a very broken world, I don't think it is possible without his help and intervention. Um, I think history has continued to show that. But I think the promise for the Christian is that by God's grace, we are going to enter into a new world, a new heaven that is full of all of the joy and peace that we're longing for. But our current task by his grace is to seek to try to create that in this broken world in which we live. We don't do it very well, uh, but uh, that is that is one of the reasons that I think we're built and called is, is to do that. So uh, I think that's certainly instructive for uh, for those of us who are, are seeking to, to be a kind of a Christian ambassador on earth. Rochelle? Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, that I just I'm just sitting here listening and stewing over the question, and I, I'm kind of in this place on my own journey, which is so interesting that you brought it up. But I think that um, polarity is unavoidable, and the world is just polarity. You know, in order to see how bright the light is, you have to know how dark the darkness is. You cannot have one without the other, and so I think absolutely that we are here to experience both to Mm -hmm. see both and then to choose light and that's what the journey really gets to be and people don't always do that and maybe they go all of their lives before um really getting to touch into um the light and the good and the peace that is available to us all the time but i think there is something to be said about experiencing the trouble um understanding and going through suffering so that the peace and the joy is so much sweeter and and uh, uh, something that you can experience. And I absolutely think that finding the light through the darkness, rising above the darkness, finding the peace is a sense of bringing heaven on earth, um, uh, experiencing what that eternal peace and grace looks like in your present day. You can switch your perspective, perspective um, rise above, like I've said, let go of mm-hmm. this falsehood that we so desperately cling to for whatever reason and step into heaven on earth. And I think that's the whole point of life, actually. Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to go to a commercial break. And, you know, we need two hours for the show, I think, but yeah. we don't have it. So we're going to go. We're going to come back and we're going to have more conversation like this. Don't go anywhere. Getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. It's marching It's well known in medical practices that patients tend to lie about their health habits. They lie about how much they smoke, understate how much they drink or eat, and overstate how much they exercise. What's another word for those little white lies we like to tell in the examination room? Teradiddles. 
doctors have a rule of thumb. Whatever the patient says they're drinking, smoking, or eating, multiply it by two. But it's hard to come clean about your habits when you know you're in for some jobation from the doctor. That's criticism we don't want to hear. If physicians want us to be honest with them, I suggest they try being a little less judgmental and use a little suaviloquence. That's soothing, encouraging talk. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. According to Weight Watchers, people who are overweight or obese are 60 to 90% more likely to develop type 2 diabetes as those who are not. Weight matters, and what you eat is vital to your outcome. The facts show that 35% of Americans, which is roughly 79 million, over the age of 20, have pre-diabetic blood sugar levels. If you are at risk of acquiring type 2 diabetes, you need to make changes in your diet and exercise. They report that losing weight, stepping up your physical activity, and eating a well-balanced diet are all critical to staving off or controlling diabetes. Diabetes is not something you want to mess around with. Keep your health and exercise a priority in your life and keep diabetes away. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear more fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. We're back. I am your host, Frankie Picasso. You're listening to Frankie Sense and More. Rochelle Decker is here with us. Kathy Craffey, uh, Ben Shaka's here. And we're just having a great conversation about life, the other side. <laughs> racial divides, all kinds of stuff, and forgiveness. Um, I think, Kathy, you wanted to, to – you had another quote or you wanted to talk about – I definitely want to talk a little bit about companionship because what – to me what we're talking about is life on this earth it was sort of the topic when we took the break. What is its purpose and and where are we going? And And I think when we get to the idea of companionship, we get really close to the purpose of this life. We we have this beautiful opportunity to to experience choices and make decisions about how we want to view God and how we want to become a you're part of. You're breaking up a little bit for me. I'm not sure if if, if oh. you're breaking up for everybody else. I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'll just try speaking a little closer, perhaps. Well, anyway, we have this wonderful opportunity for companionship, not only with God, but also with each other. And in light of that, I loved one of the phrases that came out in the afterward of Ben's book and uh, show, I'm going to mess up his last name. I don't know, Baraka, is that correct? Got it. Yeah, show Baraka. That's right. Oh, my goodness. That afterward he wrote for you was so beautifully written. I didn't know if he was being a rapper. Maybe he's just a poet. Or maybe he had some good editing from you and your team at Tyndale. But what a beautiful expression of the the challenge we face right now in this country. And one of the phrases that he used that really jumped out at me, in fact, I thought it was your voice writing it. So it wasn't until I got to the end that I realized someone else had written that part, that piece. But the phrase he used that just grabbed my heart was that idea of reckless compassion. Ah, that just touched me. Mm. So I'd love to hear you say more about that, what that means to you. 
Yeah, well, I think that um, I think that again, when we're when we're talking about relationships on Earth, and then again, just experiencing the the, the broken world that we're living in, I think sh- to Show's point, I think reckless compassion is entering into those arenas, those relationships. And there's, there's I mean, if we want to describe brokenness, it can be racial brokenness, like we've been talking about, or just dealing with forgiveness, just in interpersonal relationships, even with our own families. Is that reckless compassion is entering into that arena or that relationship, knowing that there could be a cost. Um, you know, knowing that it's going to exact something from me, um, that it's going to, it could hurt. Uh, you know, reconciliation in and of itself is is kind of almost like a military term of two two mm-hmm. parties or individuals or groups of people. They're almost kind of at war with each other, and they're they're laying down their arms. And then they're actually coming into a relationship where there's unity. Well, to, to get to that place of unity, there's tremendous cost. And so uh, I think the reckless side of, of show's uh, description there is that um, you almost kind of do it in a way that you're not really looking over your hand. You're not even really considering, you know, what do I have available to do this? You just kind of jump into the deep end of the pool um, and really enter into that and immerse yourself in a way that, um, yeah, that it could, it could genuinely have some cost to it. And compassion is a beautiful word. I mean, it's just it's really um it's a deep empathy uh it comes from a heart of lamentation that says your pain and your brokenness is something i want to sponge up as well um you know when our just quickly when we slam our finger in a door if you've ever done that before our whole Mm -hmm. body usually shows compassion to that finger i mean we we cry out sometimes we yell out stuff we can't repeat but our our other hand grabs that finger and it holds it and does everything it can to console it and our whole body stops whatever it was doing in that moment to bring that finger peace and sometimes i don't think we do that very well with each other with humanity we uh we see a a part of culture individuals that have kind of gotten slammed in a door so to speak and we either are detached we don't feel their pain or we kind of try to rationalize it away um, and just say, I'm just going to deal with the facts and kind of come to my own determination on this. And I don't think that's how God would want us to to handle the brokenness that we see around us. Um, so I, I love shows phrase there as well. I think reckless compassion is really what it's going to take in a world that is as polarized and as kind of hurting as it is. Uh, go ahead, Kathy. Well, I, I don't believe it coincidences. And two days ago, I was at a luncheon that I'd been wanting to go to for a while at a little school here called Promise Academy in East Texas. And it's the first, it's the first Christian school north of the sort of dividing line. Like there's almost a Mason Dixon line that historically in this community that we all love. And here people are really just wanting to get that line erased. They just don't want to live that way anymore. Yeah. So I went to this luncheon, and and I wanted to ask you, because for the first time I heard of this school, the Manhattan Christian Academy, my friend that started the school here worked there for seven years, and I wondered if Fairfield, where you are, the, the Christian school you're at there, if that isn't a similar one, and if you're seeing Well, I have two questions, really. I want to just say one of the things they said had to do with the inherent dignity in family, which I loved that phrase, that idea. And then the second thing I wanted to ask you is, do you think God is just raising up schools like that all over the country to to heal our land? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess uh, maybe I can start with the second question just to encourage, uh, you know, yeah, I think think there are. There's more and more schools that are popping up for our young people uh, in the city in particular. Um, Not everybody knows, but, you know, 51% of all public school children in the United States now live in poverty. And so Mm -hmm. um, that's a startling high statistic, and usually correlated with that is that many of our children um, that we care about are not, they have no school options. So many of them are zoned for really, really struggling schools or under-resourced schools. And so I do think um, that, that, that the poor and, uh, and underserved communities are, have always been at the, at the very epicenter of the heart of God for his people to address that. So, yeah, I've been, I've been thrilled. I mean, restoration is going on 30 years of existence, but we have more and more schools. We just had a brother visit us from New Orleans last uh, week who's starting a school in New Orleans. We've had a school pop up in Atlanta, one in Montgomery, Alabama, one in South Carolina. And uh, then we're also learning about some other schools that have been doing a similar work for a while. So, I do. I don't think we're the only solution. I think we also need to rally around our public schools and seek to bring them as much help as we can. Well, as well. I have, but, I have, I have a question here um, because when I hear that, when I, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, but when I hear that, that that you know these schools are popping up in underserved communities, Christian schools, and I look at all of the Christian churches that I know um, that have a lot of money. Like, why aren't the churches giving up the money? And living like Jesus and handing out the money and helping these children get educated and helping these families, you know, come up from where they are. Not handouts, not not welfare, but, you know, teaching and helping and, and reschooling and rehoming and doing all of those things that I think people should be doing for one another. Um, you know, like, why are they holding on to this money? Because the churches churches have a ton of it. And that's just my point. The point, the Frankie no, sense point of view. I said we said at the beginning. Hey, I might no, say something. That's a great, that's a great <laughs> question. No, well, Frankie, I think that's a great question. You're hitting a good nail on the head with that. I do. I can encourage. Uh, any anybody who's you know who's listening that with, in Birmingham we are seeing some really cool stuff going on. Um, there are to, there's a, restoration is a is predominantly a donor based school. So our budget is over three million dollars a year, which is extraordinary. We have almost three hundred wow. kids, and but that's. Um, but we're supported right now by 25 different churches from nine different denominations, which is also really cool. We're not a, we're not partisan to one particular denomination. Uh, about 100 volunteers come here a week from all of those different churches to tutor, to mentor. And then uh, there's other churches. That, there's, a, there's a health clinic that just popped up in our parking lot that's providing really world-class medical attention to this community, a mentoring uh, ministry. There is... Um, uh, a church that has just opened up a, a kitchen to train the residents on how to be cooks and take care of themselves and to uh, basically provide a hot lunch program for our students as well. So there's a really cool kind of symbiotic movement that's really kind of coming for the entire community, which is really, really exciting. Um, so, But I wish that was going on. and more. There are more churches that need to get involved, absolutely. And uh, there are churches that are sitting on money that could do a very similar effort, and hopefully uh, more and more will be motivated to do that and engage in works like this. And I think just engaging, engaging the population, Christian or not, religious or not, you know, it, this idea of just being human beings and helping one another and having compassion for one another. I think that's, you know, that's part of what we need. And I wanted to ask this before we go, because Rochelle, you know, your book is all about forgiveness and mm-hmm. forgiveness is not about forgiving somebody else necessarily, mm-hmm. right? The forgiveness yeah. is, is for you. Mm-hmm. So how, can you explain to people who don't understand that concept, what you what you mean? Yeah, I think the most important thing about forgiveness that I've learned is uh, the forgiveness of ourselves. Um, 
there's a lot of ideas around forgiveness. We don't have time to get into all of it. Yes. Fortunately, like you said, two hours would be great. But um, I think when we start to, I think we hold so much grievance against ourselves. And when we hold grievance against ourselves and um, our neighbor, it's actually the same thing. I, you know, I believe we're all connected. We're all um, children of the father. I think mm-hmm. that we're all on this journey together. And so when I hold a grievance against my brother or my sister, it's like holding a grievance against myself and vice versa. Totally agree. Yeah. A grievance against myself. It's like, I'm also holding a grievance against my brother. So this idea of coming together and, and, and um, you know, reckless uh, compassion and being unity all comes back to remembering like, dude, we are all the same. We all are struggling and walking this path along. A, a, along this road together, um, how can we judge one another? How can we tear one another down? How can we do that to ourselves? Where do we have the right to do that? It's it's about rising up together in unity and and and, and seeing the world as it is, and then holding you know each other's hands as we decide to make a change. Um, so. You know, when I speak about forgiveness, it's really about recognizing you and I, we're the same, regardless of where we come from or our our race or our gender or our issues. Like at the end of the day, we all feel insecure. At the end of the day, we all feel unworthy. At the end of the day, we are all, you know, bleed red. We all bleed red. <laughs> we all bleed red. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important. So, you know, we've only got two minutes. And I really want to have you guys back and, and talk about this some more because I think it's such an important topic. But, you know, it's not about all of us being the same, you know, moving forward because diversity is good. We're all the same at our core. Yeah. And we should we should celebrate our difference. But, you know, how do we move forward because it's not working what we're doing. So how do we move forward to acceptance, to love, to forgiveness? How can we walk as Jesus in this world? And I really, really wish we all could. And even without, even without being Christian, you know, how can we walk as Jesus? Cause you know, uh, how, how can we do that? How can we just walk in love and say, I love you. And so because I love you and I, I I'm going to help you and I'm going to embrace you and I'm going to treat you as if you were my family. How can we all do that? Well, I know what they would say at my church. Somebody in the audience right now would be going, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> glory. I want that so badly. Preach, I want that so badly. Yeah. I want you to come to East Texas and worship with me sometime. It's fun. <laughs> You're in a black church. Lots of, lots of good music. I'm there. Uh, we, we I'm did, there. We spend the first hour <laughs> hugging and singing. It's awesome. Oh, I love it. This is the end of our show. You know, Ben Chaka, your book, you know, Meals from Mars, uh, Rochelle Decker, your fabulous series in the last book, The Returning, Kathy Craffey, thank you so much for being my guest today, all of you. You are wonderful. I hope that you will come back again. This is Frankie Sensamori. I'm your host, Frankie Picasso, and thank you all for tuning in today. Hope you learned something new.